Hello, literacy leaders and champions. Welcome to Literacy Talks. We are so excited to welcome you to this podcast series from Reading Horizons, dedicated to exploring the ideas, trends, insights, and practical issues that will help us all improve our professional practice in teaching reading. Our series host is Stacy Hurst, professor at Southern Utah University and chief academic officer at Reading Horizons, where reading momentum begins. Joining Stacy are Donnell Pons, a recognized expert in literacy and special education, and Lindsay Kemeny, a Utah-based elementary classroom teacher. Today's topic, the numbers of reading. It's a deep dive into the statistics about reading proficiency, reading needs, and more. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Literacy Talks. I'm Stacey Hurst. I'm your host, and I am joined by my fantastic co-hosts, Lindsay and Donnell. And we are here today to talk about another topic that's relevant to literacy. And those of you who've been listening to our podcast for a while know that we take turns choosing the topic, which is fun because we all have a different lens on this literacy landscape. So today's topic has been chosen from Donnell. And she, as you know, is a dyslexia specialist. So we're going to have a fascinating conversation about numbers. Donnell, we'll just turn the time right over to you. Thank you, Stacy. So this episode, I don't know if, whether I'll regret it in the end or if we'll be glad we brought it up, but there are a lot of numbers associated with reading. So for teaching something that has a lot of letters, I'm very surprised by how many numbers go along with those letters. And so if you're in this reading game at all, you've been confronted with a lot of statistics, for one, about reading. And that usually is to, to get us catch our attention and get us energized, I think, about, oh, what do we need to do to improve our reading scores? Because usually the percentages, they're, they're scores that we're talking about. And then there's always this number that hangs out there, and it's called the one in five. And I think everybody's going to be familiar when you say one in five, they're going to know what you're talking about. And that is what caught my attention early on because I had family members who sat in those numbers squarely sitting in the one in five. And it talked to me, it spoke to me because I had been living a situation and I had become accustomed to living with folks who were part of that statistic and trying to understand it. And you think it's just you and your household. And then you realize it's not just you and your household. It's larger than that. And so I think the one in five, let's start there. And we might have time to get to other numbers because there are plenty of them and we could take those apart too. But let's just start with the one in five. And I'm going to get us rolling by pulling out some of the information that I have run into just by looking at one in five. If you're an educator, I think I can almost sense a collective head nodding as educators around the country are listening to this podcast and saying, yes, let's talk about that one in five because it can be kind of tricky. So first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity, which we all know is associated with Dr. Sally Shaywitz, who does fantastic work in the field of dyslexia and learning. And this one in five is, I think, where I got it from was Dr. Sally Shaywitz. That's where I'm coming from. And a lot of folks maybe have picked it up other places, but here's one of the things that's on the website there. They give a little definition of what is dyslexia, and it can be in children and adults who struggle to read fluently, spell words correctly, and learn a second language among other challenges. It's unexpected in an individual who has the intelligence to be a much better reader. So give a little background of dyslexia. 
While people with dyslexia are slow readers, they often paradoxically are very fast and creative thinkers with strong reasoning abilities. Here comes the kicker. Dyslexia is also very common, affecting 20% of the population and representing 80 to 90% of all those with learning disabilities. Scientific research shows differences in brain connectivity between dyslexic and typical reading children, providing a neurological basis for why reading fluency is a struggle for those with dyslexia. So right there, we're confronted with a number. Sounds easy, right? Oh, good. There's a number I can wrap my head around. It says 20% of the population and representing 80 to 90% of all those with learning disabilities. But then shortly, you go to another website like understood.org or even the National Center for Learning Difficulties or Disabilities, and you see one in five. There it is. That's familiar. I just saw that on the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity. But here it says one in five children in the U.S. have learning and attention issues. And then they name that as children with dyslexia, ADHD, and other kinds of learning and attention issues. What's going on? What do you guys think? Well, I'm just thinking because I saw that and Sally Shaywitz has never referred to in the 20%. She's never included the children with attention difficulties, has she? That's not what she measured, right? In her research, there's a high level of comorbidity between those with dyslexia and attention deficits. Are we still using that word? (laughs) And learning differences. I'm curious about how many students do have attention difficulties. I guess I just want more information on that because could the percentage be a little bit higher, do you think, than 20%? Or do you think it's a little bit lower? I don't know. I never thought of them as combined. I've always thought of the one in five as one in five have dyslexia. Yeah. It makes me start thinking too about as an educator, how do we address that? I feel like we're just making headway, some significant headway with those that have dyslexia and knowing how to address their needs. But then you add in this attention factor. And I have seen it in my students who don't have dyslexia and how that impacts reading is significant. Being honest, I'm starting to feel a little overwhelmed. Okay. Stay there because I'm going to add to that. (laughs) Let's go a little further. In Dr. Sally Shaywitz's next edition of Overcoming Dyslexia, it's her second edition, just came out. There's on page 31, if anyone has a copy and they want to look at it later or, or while they're doing the podcast, maybe they've got a copy handy. On page 31 at the bottom of the page, she says, while biologically based, dyslexia is expressed within the context of the classroom so that its identification often depends on the school system's understanding of dyslexia. So let's make that even more complicated and say that apparently because of its characteristics and how it manifests, dyslexia really is in the wheelhouse of educators to find. So I think that's interesting too, as we're looking at it. So we might even be struggling with, so what does the one in five mean? And are we including ADHD in that? And can somebody pull those numbers apart? But furthermore, Dr. Shaywitz is saying, hey, if we want to get a handle on how many students have dyslexia, we're really relying on classroom teachers. Do you think we have the background for that? No, definitely not. (laughs) I think most of us aren't trained in dyslexia. I never was. The only reason I know about dyslexia is because my son was diagnosed with it. And that led me to seek out that information. But it didn't just come to me. Any trainings I've had, I've gone to, you know, had to seek them out. And I'm thinking from the lens of an early childhood educator, it makes sense to me that students with dyslexia the behaviors are manifest starting in kindergarten 
because that's when we start focusing on those letters. And so I understand what Dr. Shaywitz is saying, and I agree that that is a great setting for us to start to recognize that. I think the the challenge, whether you're a parent or an educator, especially with an early childhood background, would be to parse out, to have the information that you would need to know to parse out what is developmentally typical and what isn't. I heard this frequently as a first grade teacher. Uh, parents would come to me often and say, um, my student at the beginning of the school year, I'd say, my student is reversing B&Ds. I'd like them tested for dyslexia. <laughs> and it was a different time. I couldn't even say the word dyslexia as a teacher at that point. But I know there's a developmental component. I understand that a lot better now when we know more about brain development, that some of that is typical until a student really gets that correct letter formation and recognition in their lung. But could we parse it down to these are key indicators that vary from developmentally typical um, indicators? Can I put a pitch in here for all the states who have created a dyslexia handbook? And I have read multiple states um, handbooks, and I think there's some very useful information for educators and parents in those handbooks. And I know that those of us who are educators have probably heard about the ones in our state, but I just recommend doing a Google search and reading as many as you can. There's some really great ones out there. Because I think they're underutilized. And, you know, I know they send them to every school, you know, they may, I know they did in my state, and then they might get placed on a shelf somewhere and, and never picked up again. So that is great advice to go seek out to see if your state has a dyslexia handbook. I actually make that an assignment in one of my classes. I have, I teach some online courses and my students are all over the country, but it has been really fun to watch the discussion around that. Once they recognize that that resource is there. I do think more people could take advantage of that. So I sat in years ago and helped write our dyslexia handbook in our state. And I really thought that would be just the beginning and that we would add more pieces because it really isn't enough just on its own. And I really thought this will lay the groundwork and we will lay other pieces on top of it in order to help educators to better get a handle on these students who really do struggle and what we can do to, to get in early, to do early intervention, because we know that makes a big difference. In fact, that early intervention, I think, is what leads to some of the statistics that don't match up. And in fact, that's an interesting conversation between Dr. Sally Shaywitz and someone who interviewed her, who, who really got to line up some of the statistics and said, oh, Dr. Shaywitz, I think I'm finally getting a vision of why these statistics don't line up. You're talking about numbers that you identify coming in from the end of your research, where you're just looking at numbers of kids coming in. And I'm looking at some of the numbers of researchers who say, when we intervene and we have early intervention, we can get the numbers down to this low of how many will continue to struggle. So he says, oh, I think I'm finally having a light bulb moment as to why a lot of those statistics don't line up. They're measuring two different things. You're measuring students who are never getting intervention. I'm just looking at raw numbers. And some of the researchers are looking at, if we intervene at a site, look how few kids will really struggle over time. So that, that was an interesting thing to point out too, some of the information that comes available to us as we do intervene. So those handbooks, Lindsay, I'm glad you mentioned it. Stacey, I'm glad you mentioned it too. I thought that was just the beginning of what we would see happening in order to provide resources for schools. And instead, we've been lucky to have the handbook. And even now we need to update it 
and it really is the only thing we still have. I love that you said that, Donnell. You kind of clarified those different points. And because I think sometimes if you don't understand dyslexia, then you might think, oh, this child isn't going to be able to learn to read. In fact, I was even told that about my own son, you know, when I was, I I can't remember if I read it somewhere, but I was like, oh, I can only really expect him to get to a fifth grade level, you know, which, which isn't true. And what you just said, how the other researchers kind of looking at the other end, because we can intervene and get them proper help and they can become proficient readers. And it's so much easier if we can get them when they're young, if you can start the prevention in kindergarten and intervention first and second is so much easier than trying to remediate those problems when they're older, right? So much faster. Yeah. Talk about another number, Donnell. You and I recently have discussed this within the last month. The fact that for every hour that it would take in an early elementary grade level to teach reading in a way that aligns with how our brain develops, it would take four hours, fourth grade and beyond to compensate for that. And I think that is significant. Also, I appreciate what you just said, Lindsay, because as educators, we need to rely on the hope that some of those numbers represent the fact that 95% of our students can be reading proficiently by the end of first grade is comforting to me that that can happen. That's possible. And I do think with students with dyslexia specifically, Early identification seems to be so key. We just don't see it that often. That's that's the thing. And so I love to lean into stories where I'm a part of them, first person, with the knowledge that I now have. We clearly will have family members that are around me that will have children who have dyslexia. And that has happened. I've now lived long enough. I'm not going to tell you how old I am because it will date me entirely. But I now have family members who are having children. I have enough knowledge now that we've been able to intervene with their little ones. And I have, thankfully, cousins that will never have the same experience with reading that my children and my husband had. And that's the proof in the pudding, is I actually got to see this firsthand by knowing what to do and doing those things early and understanding what to do. We now have children who are never going to have the same experience, which is exactly what we want, right? That is powerful. So I remember um, my little brother, when he was younger, could not rhyme to save his life. If I knew then what I know now, I could have helped a lot more, realizing what a big indicator that is. And Donnell, I also think about this. I'm so lucky, you guys, that Donnell gets to visit my class every semester. And sometimes she brings Curtis along with her. And Donnell says so many really impactful things that my students remember for a long time. But man, Curtis says the things that get right to their heart. And one of the things that he has said is that once as an adult, he had the right tools and instruction and time and attention and support that he learned how to read proficiently, that he doesn't even show up on screeners as dyslexic anymore. And my students bring that up. We always have to clarify that that doesn't mean that dyslexia is cured, but we can definitely support it in a way that they can become proficient readers, like you said, Lindsay. Yeah. One of my biggest regrets, I think, with my son, he was diagnosed the end of his second grade year. I didn't know anything about dyslexia, so I got a tutor who did know about dyslexia to work with him, which was awesome, but we only did it twice a week. And 
you know, dyslexia is a spectrum. He's on the very severe end. So he needed a lot more than twice a week. So we saw some growth, but just not a ton. And fast forward a year later is when I finally, you know, had learned and had training myself and felt ready to take that on. And so I took that on and started working with him every day. That's when we really saw that growth. He needed something a little more intense. And I wish I had done that the year before, because I think we could have made more headway when he was a little younger. And he just said to me um, the other day, mom, so does this mean that my kids are probably going to have dyslexia? And I was just thinking, you know, they might, but now like, guess what? Their grandma is going to be on it. (laughs) Like bring them to my house. So we're going to like, we're going to get on it when they're really young. So, Lindsay, I'm really glad that you you said that because it's true. And Stacey, you brought up maybe a little earlier and we skipped over the point that dyslexia is on a spectrum, right? So there's a great deal of understanding as to what that spectrum looks like that's required so that we do intervene appropriately. Lindsay, you said you had to learn the hard way in having spent a year, then the second year when you really knew what you were doing, then you understood, oh dear, what I should have been doing the first year. And that was just a spectrum issue. You knew your son had dyslexia, you were doing the right things, but understanding the severity was part of the issue. And so as we talk about, and Stacey, you had mentioned it earlier that there's that whole spectrum and there are a lot of information that we still don't have available to educators. The handbooks are a great resource, but within that, you've really got to dig deep and make sure that you're understanding all the complexities that come with dyslexia. And then we didn't even talk about, and we will later, about the attention issues that can co-attend with dyslexia, right? Because as you learn, when you have a learning difficulty or any other difficulty, it can often co-attend, right? We don't live in a vacuum, as many of our psychologists that have shared information with us are quick to point out. Uh, One thing I want to do at this juncture, because I think it's really interesting to ask this question, how many of you think that more boys have dyslexia than girls? Or do you already know the answer? I think I already know. (laughs) I read the handbook, so I actually know. See? See how good that handbook can be? (laughs) That's just one of those things that's important to know is that it occurs as often in girls as it does in boys. As far as Dr. Sally Shaywitz's research, and she's one of our foremost researchers, There is no difference, but it manifests or can look different in girls because of behavior, right? And different things. That's important to know. That's one of those aspects that's important to know and statistically important because you might statistically be thinking more of the boys in your classroom and missing the girls in the classroom. Get all the resources discussed during Literacy Talks podcast episodes and stay up to date about webinars and other special events from Reading Horizons. Go to readinghorizons.com slash literacy talks and subscribe to our podcast digest so you're always in the know about everything literacy. I have a, a question. I'm wondering this. So another number that we hear frequently in literacy are the NAEP scores. And I know that those are highly described, <laughs> meaning they're just discouraging and they have been for a long time. If we, as a, you know, a system, educational system could get that one thing right with dyslexia, early identification and intervention, how much of an impact do you think that would have on those NAEP scores? And Stacey, I'm going to jump in because I'm glad you brought this up. What we know about 
good instruction. And we've talked a lot about that on the podcast. We will continue to talk about what good instruction looks like. It's the science of reading based in the science of reading. It's structured literacy. If you want to look up that term, many teachers know that's so good. More teachers know what we're talking about than don't, I think, these days. We know that in looking at all the research that many students will benefit from the same instruction that is crucial for students with dyslexia. That's the beauty of the whole thing of teaching using the science of reading, is that not only are we meeting the needs of our students who have dyslexia, but it also helps a lot of other students who need a just better, more explicit, systematic instruction. So that, I think, is fantastic that comes out of it. Oftentimes, my husband is referred to himself as the canary in the cave. He's that kid in the classroom that indicated we have a problem. Houston, there's an issue in the classroom. If that kid with dyslexia is struggling hardcore and nothing's reaching that student with dyslexia, there's probably some other students in the room who who don't have the challenges that my, my husband had or has, but could have used some really good instruction. Where could they be today? So the rising tide lifts all boats kind of an idea. And another number that we like to think of, well, we don't like to think of, but we need to face is that most of our students who are receiving special education services, up to 85%, are therefore reading. They have, uh, they have goals related to reading. And we know from our MTSS and RTI data that a significant number of those students wouldn't even need to be there if we could support teachers in giving that kind of structured literacy instruction that you've been talking about. I think it is important to clarify because it is critical that in tier one instruction that we are doing the best we can, that we're delivering um, instruction in a way that aligns with the science of learning how to read and teaching reading and in a structured literacy manner, but that students who have dyslexia and show characteristics of that early on will still need intensive intervention. It may not be for as long. Am I right in that, Donnell? It, it's not like a flock shot. You can't just address all of the needs in tier one instruction. You need to be differentiating and allowing for that. Absolutely. And this leads us into, so Stacey, I'm glad you brought up the special education statistic. And that's another one I think Shaywitz, even in that quote that I, I read, was indicating that a good 80 to 90% she has on her website of students in special education are there because they're struggling with reading. And we know that they're not getting what they need, many many of our students, because I have a special education certification and I never received any of the training in reading that I needed. That was part of the desire I had to go out and find it on my own. And Lindsay, I know you probably have some very good points on this about when we assume that students with certain difficulties are going to be supported, taught, whatever, in a certain setting, that oftentimes means that an appropriate setting like the general classroom isn't providing the kind of support that student needs. Let's kind of talk about that for a minute. Yeah, well, and I wanted to talk back about, like, I do think there's just this misconception. I know I had it initially that um, that that the ones with dyslexia need something completely different, you know? And I thought that at first too. So I'm glad we brought up this point that really we can all benefit from this approach that dyslexics need, which is the structured literacy approach and the ones with dyslexia just might need more intense, a little more repetition. Some of those that you know are having a hard time need small group, need one-on-one. -on -one. They might have attention difficulties that make it really hard for them to you know 
be serviced in the classroom because they're they're missing that information because they're having a hard time focusing. So I love pulling kids into small group where I can really meet their needs individually. And Stacy, did you have something to say on that? Because I know you have some really good thoughts on general classroom and how much can be done in a general classroom when the teacher is loaded with information and understanding. Yeah. And I really, as Lindsay was talking, felt like I was at church. I just wanted to say amen. Amen. <laughs> and I don't think we can overstate what you said about the type of instruction students with dyslexia or students who are struggling. Luckily, it's not something totally different. We don't have to stand on our heads and do something radical. It is just more of the same and more targeted with more feedback and practice and application. And I wish I had this quote ready, but Stanislaus Day is the one that says it, that reading in the brain happens the same way. (laughs) We have uh, such a myth in education sometimes of things like learning styles and And that can get in the way, I think, of us providing the instruction our students need for reading. It's really all very much the same, just levels of intensity vary. As long as, I will add, as long as in tier one, you're not doing, you know, something whole language based or that mostly teaches the top 40% of your classroom instead of everyone, right? And so that structured literacy is going to have all those important components. We're going to have explicit phonics instruction, phonemic awareness. We're not going to neglect the other strands though of Scarborough's reading rope, and we're going to hit vocabulary, comprehension, background knowledge, fluency. All of those are all important components in this. And educate and teacher knowledge is so critical when it comes to that. And this is a topic for another podcast, but when we're talking about phonics instruction, even just knowing what the word systematic means could make a difference in the kind of instruction that you're providing for your students. And so teacher knowledge absolutely impacts that practice. And then I wanted to add to that too. This is such a great conversation right here, and I don't want it to go without really emphasizing how important it is when you have a strong teacher in your tier one whole classroom that has a firm understanding of how reading should be taught and is teaching it well there. And then you add on with either a tier two or a tier three, and maybe that same tier two instruction is occurring in the classroom. So the teacher knows how to take that same instruction into a small group like Lindsay referred to. And even tier three, which doesn't have to be in special education. Additionally, if we go to a tier three instruction, using the same terminology, having the same understanding of what's been taught in class is so vital for our struggling students because we're already asking a lot of them cognitively, but you have no idea what you're asking of that student when you go from in the whole classroom talking one way about the instruction, moving into a tiered setting where now I'm using a whole different program because I think that's necessary. I think I've got to change everything to a whole different program. So now that poor student who was struggling in the classroom is having to learn different terminology. There's a whole different system for how we do things. And then furthermore, into a tier three setting. And that was my son. I can speak firsthand to this, how challenging that was for him, because he was, by the time we'd finished one year in school where he got identified as needing help with reading, no one ever said the word dyslexia. By the end of that year, he had been exposed to four reading programs, four very different reading programs. His head was swimming. In one year? In one year, one instructional year. Can you imagine doing that to a student? 
what's so good about this conversation is our understanding. When we have a really good understanding of what should be occurring in the general classroom, we do better things outside of the general classroom when students need additional instruction. It starts from that classroom every time, doesn't it? Yeah. And just to illustrate that, if you will indulge me a moment to share an example of one of my students, we have a practicum situation where we are teaching kindergartners those foundational skills. And I love to watch my students in action, but we were teaching them. It was um, phonological awareness. It was an assessment. So the focus was on syllables and those kindergartners did not know what a syllable was. (laughs) So we had, I kind of uh, anticipated that happening us. And I said, you know, typically if you say they're the beats in the word and you clap them and But my students had also been taught the technical definition of a syllable, which is a unit of speech organized around one vowel sound. And so when this particular student, my my student, her kindergartners were not understanding the concept of a syllable enough to even complete the task she was asking them. In her mind, she said, I know they know vowels. I know that a syllable is organized around one vowel sound. So if I say to them, do you know what the vowel sounds are? And they reviewed the vowel sounds. And then she said, a syllable has one vowel sound. Let's see how many vowel sounds are in this word. And then they got it. And then they could demonstrate it. And I think in that moment, she also demonstrated the impact of knowledge. Because if I had been, I mean, rewind 20 whatever years ago, (laughs) I started my first year of teaching, I would have just plodded along with the beats in a word. Here, let's clap them out. Maybe your hand up, you're under your chin and your elbow on the table, but I didn't have the knowledge to even define a syllable. So we can not overestimate the importance of teachers needing to know these things because then they work. I don't want to say work their magic. It really is skill, right? We can address the needs of all readers. Yeah, and I'm really glad, Stacy, that you brought that up about just being able to meet the needs of your students in the moment, because that's the other piece that comes from having really good instruction and understanding, is that then you can make those calls in the moment, right? When your students are struggling, you know where to go next, and you don't feel like, well, I have to stick with this because I really don't know what else to do. And that's providing that really nice base and foundation and ongoing learning, ongoing coaching and support for our teachers that I think is invaluable. We need to keep advocating for it. Okay, so it looks like, you guys, we've already had such a great conversation. We're already running up against our time. I feel like I could do this for another hour. I have so much more we want to talk about. Who knew that one in five would lead to such a big conversation? But it really does. It's at the heart of what we do is talking about that number that grabbed so much attention, but it really does take us on a lot of different pathways on our journey to understand the reading and reading challenges is looking at one in five. What are we talking about with one in five and unpacking it? So that being said, with just a a few minutes left to go, I want to ask both of you to think about it for a second. I think, Lindsay, I picked on you the last time I was leading and made you talk first. I'm going to let you think this time and Stacey has to go first. But just if you have any closing thoughts on that one in five that we've been talking about to leave with people the impact of one in five on you, anything you haven't been able to say so far or something you want to make sure you've emphasized? I think it's important to emphasize that those one in five statistics are what we know. They're the evident, the obvious, those who have been diagnosed with dyslexia. What we don't know is how many more people are suffering in silence. So that number is likely bigger than one in five. Adding on to that, 
you know, just as I said, dyslexia is that spectrum. And it's really just where you decide to put the cut point. And the important thing, if you're wondering, does this child have dyslexia or do they not? The most important thing is really to drill down and see where their weaknesses are, because we know dyslexia presents differently in different kids. And so see where the weaknesses are and that's where you start. And that's the most important thing is that you provide proper intervention. Good thoughts. And I just want to add, this is so personal for me, and I know it is for many other people. It is for you too, Lindsay, and it will be for people listening. And maybe there are people who will be listening who have been thinking that maybe they are part of or know someone who's part of the one in five and they weren't sure. And maybe this is enough to spur them to go look further to help those individuals that they think might could be part of the statistic. And I hope it does that for some folks. Or maybe there's some teachers who are thinking, you know what, I haven't really thought a lot about the one in five. And, and maybe this week I'll, I'll make that a goal. But I want to leave with just some personal thoughts, because for me, one in five spoke to my family. It was my family. We're a living statistic. We're that one in five. And it was interesting. Once we opened the door to the one in five and we we were embraced the fact that that was us and our family, and it gave my husband a name for something that he had dragged with him his entire life that had shaped his whole educational experience. Once he was able to do that, it was interesting that he was able to frame his early education when it, before he said, I just kind of left it, I shut a door on it, it was in the dark. And once he said, I opened that door, I was able to let that little guy that I had shut inside the door, I was able to let him out and start some healing. And that's the thing we have to remember is that the one in five statistic isn't just a statistic for education, for learning, for knowing what to do in a classroom. It's somebody's life. And we know that reading is the most important thing that we can teach our students. And so it's the most impactful thing that we do. That's why the one in five is a life, is because reading is at the heart of it. It's the heart of everything. And when my husband finally embraced that name of dyslexia, I'm in a group, this is who I am, it was a game changer. And that's why I say, let's keep pushing. Let's keep moving forward. When we put out that handbook and we thought, surely there'll be more, I'm still hopeful that there will be more and we'll talk more and have more understanding because the school is the front line, as we've talked about before. And we're so grateful for our educators and everything that they do. And it just illustrates how important their job is. Grateful so much for this conversation. Thank you for choosing this topic, Donnell. And to all of those of you out there who are educators, those of you who are in roles to support educators, we hope this hasn't overwhelmed you because those statistics, like Donnell said, represent lives. And we do fill those in our hearts. We fill them to the core as teachers because we see those faces on those statistics every day. And you know, I do picture that with my first graders, but also my college students. Um, You just never know. And typically when we study reading differences like dyslexia, I will frequently have at least three students who come to me and say, I think I have dyslexia. And so the message I hope we can end with today is that if you're an educator and you're feeling overwhelmed by this term dyslexia, especially if you're in tier one instruction, just know we know what to do now. And that information is available and we are here, so you'll have our contact information. Reach out. And I know a couple of people on this podcast who are a great resource <laughs> for um, information that will help support teachers in what they're doing. So this is a hopeful message. Let's not get discouraged by the numbers, but let's do our best to see those change. And we'll all celebrate together when they do. 
So thank you for joining us and we will have another great conversation next week. Thanks for listening to Literacy Talks, the podcast series for literacy leaders and champions everywhere. Literacy Talks comes to you and your colleagues from Reading Horizons, where reading momentum begins. Visit readinghorizons.com slash literacy talks often for resources, ideas, and great literacy learning conversations. Subscribe to our podcast digest and you'll always be up to date on all things literacy. See you next time.